This is a privilege of the federal government, and we have people around the world and in this country who want to buy treasuries, hold them, because we are the greatest economy on this planet, and we are a very safe asset. That's the thing we need to protect, right? Because we can keep issuing debt as long as people want to buy it. Right now, looks great. But again, this goes back to like, let's look at the tax and spend policy. Let's make sure we continue to be the best planet, the best economy on this planet. Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey everybody, it's Gene Marks again. Welcome back to another episode of the Paychecks Thrive podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk about the economy today with Claudia Sam. Claudia is a former Federal Reserve economist. She is a columnist for Bloomberg, and she's the founder of Psalm Consulting that provides independent economic research and analysis. Uh, Claudia, first of all, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. It's just uh, as we were just about to start recording, you were like, hey, former Federal Reserve economist, like that's no big deal. Give me a little bit of your background, your history. Why are you, how did you make it here? I started the Federal Reserve in 2007 as one of the staff economists covering uh, consumer spending. You all can imagine how my first year at the Federal Reserve was with the financial (laughs) crisis. I stayed there for a little over a decade. During that time, I had a chance to be an economist at the White House for a year. And when I left in 2019, it was to work with Congress on ways to fight the next recession. As it turned out, the next recession came rather quickly, and I have had an opportunity to work on everything from the CARES Act to the rescue plan and then some after. And in that time, I became an independent economist so I could do lots of different kinds of work and not have a partisan bent to that work. I am glad to hear that. And um, and I think it's a, it's, a great, it's, it's a great field to be in. So as an independent economist, do you, do you get hired by companies or think tanks or research organizations that just want some kind of special work done on their, on their behalf? Another great aspect of founding my own consultancy is I have a very wide portfolio of work. I do everything from uh, fiscal policy for the United States, also for foreign countries. So writing papers, doing analysis, uh, giving talks on how to do their fiscal policy better. I do private sector. I talk to Wall Street. I talk to business owners, just like I am today. Sure. And and I also... Um, do do writing. I do a lot of opinion writing. I write at Bloomberg. I have a sub stack. I do other publications like Financial Times on the side. So I've just had an opportunity, many opportunities to pursue the kind of work that I love. Now, being a consultant is not easy. And yet it's afforded me opportunities. That I couldn't I couldn't go take any one job and be able to do all the things I'm doing right now. Understood. That's great to hear. All right, let, let, let's get into this. Um, so as I told you before we started recording, like our audience are mostly uh, business owners and managers, mostly for employer-owned businesses all across different industries. And it's it's very, very tough to generalize about the U.S. economy. But I, I'm going to tell you, we're, we're talking right now, it's like a, almost the middle of February. Just last week, the Wall Street Journal um, had an editorial that said that, and I quote, the Congressional Budget Office shows the U.S. is paddling toward the fiscal falls, um, with obviously our national debt being at an all-time high. Um, so I'm going to start with that, Claudia. I Again, you're talking to business owners. Why should we care? 
First of all, I could go back decades ago and find a Wall Street Journal article that looked a lot like that. I right? agree. We've, we've been sounding this alarm for a very long time. Yes, $34 trillion is a big number. Household wealth in the United States is a multiple of that. So we can play the big number game. And yet that really doesn't tell us much about what are we facing. So I wrote a Bloomberg column uh, last month and, and I... I Unpack and let me this. interrupt you. Let me interrupt you. So it said the U.S. debt is now 34 trillion. Don't worry. Seriously. That's what you said. Um, and, and tell us why not. Right. So I, didn't get to, I didn't get to pick that column or that. I didn't get to pick that. headline. <laughs> uh, you know, so what, what I argue in the piece is instead of talking about the top line, talking about how big the deficit is, let's step back and have a real serious conversation about our tax and spend policies. Okay. We, we can spend $34 trillion in a great way and we can throw it to the wind, right? So that's the conversation. There's only so much time for discussion in Washington, D.C. or in any of our lives. So I want us to switch the discussion to what I think would be much more productive, which is talking about what are we doing with the deficit as opposed to setting some artificial cap, right? right. Saying this is too big. You know, so I understand the concerns. I'm just trying to shift uh, the conversation on the idea. I do agree with the headline to some extent. Right now, we do not have a problem. One place that we should look and be very careful of, we have to service our debt. Right. right? The United States has to make those debt payments. Right now, the interest payments on the U.S. debt are at a are very low fraction. Uh, that percent now is lower than in the 1990s. So we're able to pay that interest and the federal government, unlike any household, unlike any business, unlike any state and local government, we don't have to pay it back. Mm. Right? This is a privilege of the federal government and we have people around the world and in this country who want to buy treasuries, hold them because we are the greatest economy on this planet mm -hmm. and we are a very safe asset. That's the thing we need to protect, right? Because right. we can keep issuing debt as long as people want to buy it. Right now, looks great. But again, this goes back to like, let's look at the tax and spend policies. Let's make sure we continue to be the best planet, the best economy on this planet. Sure. What do you mean when you say we don't have to pay it back? Is it because we just can, we have the ability to just refinance and refinance? I mean, in a technical term, you have to pay off. Like if someone holds a treasury, you do have to tenure treasury. You have to sure. redeem it and pay them off. And yet... You could even, if you wanted to, the federal government could just issue more debt and pay off that other treasury. The right. federal government has no constraint, unless we set a constraint, Congress right. could set a constraint. There is no constraint on their ability to issue treasuries, print right. money. That is a very special privilege. It's one that the U.S., the fact that we have people who always want to buy our treasuries, our debt, that that is a very special position to be in. And we, we can use that authority and have used that authority often for very good measure. But again, we should never make any comparison of the federal government to a household, right. to a business. It's just not they're just not the same. And it's funny that you say that. And it's really relevant because um, that's the biggest mistake that my audience make, you know, as, as business owners, I make the mistake as well. I mean, we view of, you know, expenses, you know, outrunning revenues and therefore that's a deficit and that's just not a sustainable thing if you're a business. Mm -hmm. But I guess your point of view is that if you're, if you're a government, particularly the United States government, which has the most sought after securities in the world, 
that can be sustained for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future. Is that is that sort of the point that you're making? Absolutely. As long as our people that buy the treasuries, as long as they still have full faith in the U.S. government to, right. to pay off those treasuries, to pay off the interest, and as long as as long as our economy, our treasuries continue to be seen as a safe asset, right? right? In times of trouble, even if the trouble starts in the United States, U.S. treasuries are a place where investors go. Right. So that that's a longstanding privilege that we've had as a country. It's it's not God given. Like we right. can lose that privilege. We are nowhere near losing that privilege right now. And yet that's why I think we should think about the policies we're doing. The other misconception that I come across is, and I even saw uh, Jay Powell, Fed Chair, do this on 60 Minutes, and I took a deep breath, uh, <laughs> is the idea that by borrowing now, we are hurting our grandchildren, our children, mm-hmm. like the future generations, that we ought to now live within our means as a citizenry and have the debt. So okay so technically we know that our children and grandchildren will be paying taxes and again we do have to service that debt we have to pay the interest yes and yet there are a lot of other problems that we could pass to our children right if we don't have policies to think about climate change if we don't have policies to fight child poverty Mm-hmm. invest in schools. Mm-hmm. These are, are spending policies the U.S. government can do. So you have to think, would my grandchild rather have a little bit higher tax bill or would they still like to have a planet to live on right. or have had a, a, a childhood that was allowed them to flourish? Right. So it's, it, you have to put it in context and think about well, what are the trade-offs here? Right, right. You know, I mean, if you take an extreme example of your your point of view, um, you know, people can argue that, hey, listen, why do we even need taxes? I mean, what, 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 you know, I mean, if we don't have any revenues coming in, we'll just have expenditures and we'll just continue to borrow to fund those expenditures and we can live in a tax free country. Obviously, that's unrealistic. Um, but why do we need taxes then if that's if, if you feel that we can continue to borrow um, as long as the interest can be sustained? It, it, it's not a good look. <laughs> right for the country in the sense that we we do need to again have investors see us as a credible government one that is being responsible with our resources so the idea that you're just going to let the money printer rip for like generations like th- this will undermine the confidence that people have in our country and so but there is there's always a big discussion i i find it fascinating so as an economist i can um, I can bring a lot of data and research to a question about the the federal deficit. How right. should we think about this? And yet, as I watch the debates, I'm like, this really isn't about economics, which is fine. It's really a, a discussion about how large do we want the federal government to be? How much mm. do we want them to be doing in our lives mm. or how little? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, people can have different views on that. That is perfectly fine. That is not something I, as an economist, can or should be weighing in on. And and yet, you know, the, the political economy, particularly around the deficit, I mean, this has been with us for a long time. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's the size of government. And your question about the taxes, that does the less and less taxes we have, because we do have to have some sense of a balance 
for investors, right. that then is going to pull in the spending Got and it. vice versa. Right. So you, you can definitely see this fall on, on um, political lines. I definitely can. Um, okay. Um, you wrote another great column in Bloomberg about uh, economists flying blind all along, if I can, if I can stoke your memory in that. And it, it, it really, it, it, it was very relevant for me because um, we get as consumers, business owners, we get data that's fed to us from the government, GDP, the unemployment rate, you know, retail sales, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and we all know, but we don't realize that this data gets revised quite a lot. Um, I forget which economist, I just went on Twitter, did a whole look back at 2023's job numbers and showed from the initial revision and then the two revisions afterwards, how many times those job numbers were, were revised down, you know? And sometimes they're revised up, but they, they go through a lot of revisions. Um, do you, you know, you talk about the economists flying blind all along. What are, what are your thoughts on relying on the government's numbers? Are they... Are they good numbers for a business owner to track? Does GDP really matter? Or is it really relevant if coming from the government? Or should we be looking at other metrics to really track how the economy is going? The official statistics that we have, whether it's GDP or the payrolls or inflation, the CPI, those are the absolute best numbers that we have in this country. They're okay. very comprehensive. They There's t statistical methods that really take put a lot of effort into putting all the pieces together. That said, and the point of the column, and I think the point of anyone who uses it is we we try to measure what's going on. I mean, right. we have a $24 trillion plus economy, hmm. the best statisticians in the world, the best survey. How are you going to like measure something like that to perfection? Right? right. So the estimates that we have, these are good estimates. I mean, they're the best we have, the official statistics. It's gotten more challenging to get people to answer surveys. It's gotten more challenging to really get those estimates. And, and that was something I talked a lot about in the column. Mm -hmm. Now, backing up to someone, to a business owner that might want to use the statistics, just never get hung up on the latest number. And, and you'll hear the talking heads, oh, you know, the CPI was 0.2%. Oh, no, it was 0.25%. I mean, like, people like me, our job is to really drill down, know the details, look at the latest forecast yeah. revisions. And yeah, it's like these things will revise over time. And the official statistics give you a national picture. Mm -hmm. Any business owner is going to have a lot of data that they need to look at that's very specific to their um their work, their, their own conditions. Yep. So I try and I would advise, you know, in this group, look at the data and kind of look at the big picture, right? Even though payrolls revised some and did, da, 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 it still looks like a good labor market, right? Right. And that's what, you know, jobs are being created. The industries are being created. Spending is good. So it's important to step back some, not get, get sucked into the, the commentary the day it came out in one month. Look at a pattern. Look over three months. Think about, you know, big picture. What does this look like? You know, line it up across different data series. It's been really hard over the last four years to figure out what was going on in the mm -hmm. economy because everything mm -hmm. was haywire. One other thing I would say that didn't that I didn't talk about in the column, but for this audience is relevant. 
the data that you have, the information, say, from your own company or your industry, it's it's worthwhile to take some time making sure that's high quality data, okay. right? And, and that can be pretty tough. And I worked with some uh, payment transaction data with a large payment processor, and we put a lot of time at the Fed into kind of sifting through what really wasn't helpful to figure out spending and then kind of get it down to a core. So be always be a little suspicious of data sure. and yet bring it in like decisions based on data, including to your own judgment. Like you have to draw an inference, you know, have an opinion. The data don't speak for themselves. They don't tell you what to do. Uh, and so one way to to counteract some of the issues would be to look at a larger set and yet, even though you shouldn't take one month of any official statistic and run with it, those are those are the best data that we have. Got it. I got it. So, you if you were running a business, Claudia, and you are, I mean, you know, you, you you've got your own independent firm that you're you know that that you're running. Um, what would you, you what data do you look at to kind of see at least what direction the economy is going? Um, you mentioned earlier about industry-specific data, and that's critical, even regional data, you know, I mean, the markets that you're in. Um, and I don't know if you have any data that you can or, or sources that you can share with us, but give me some idea of like what metrics you like to follow that kind of give you a good, you know, thumb on where the economy is heading. So as a macroeconomist, I tend to work on economy-wide data. Everyone's might have a project that's specific to an industry or a region. And so my go-to for almost all the work I do, uh, there's a database called FRED. Yeah, and it's it's run fed. through the Federal Reserve. It's set up in an easy way. You can go find stuff. They actually do have regional um, industry data. Again, if you, you know, it's a nice user-friendly database. Great. Now, in terms of what do I look at when I'm trying to figure out what's happening in the economy, one piece of information, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, are we in a recession? Are we going into a recession? I've been asked this for two years straight. <laughs> and like, so I'm an expert on recessions. I pay a lot of attention to the labor market. Okay. The unemployment rate is often an excellent measure of where are, like, are we in a good place with the labor market? Are we in a bad place? It's not perfect, but if you can only pick one data series, hmm. you know, you sent to a desert island, like that's the hmm. one you would want to take with you. And hmm. in fact, I have a recession indicator, which was later named the SOM rule, that uses the national unemployment rate and looks at changes in it to say, hey, we're in a recession, send out the fiscal relief. So that that's why I ended up a recession expert, because I have an indicator. Uh, and so that's one that I look at. Consumer spending is, I mean, this won't be a surprise to anyone, is an important measure of the strength of the economy. Consumer sure. spending is 70% of the economy. It's, I mean, it's the driver in any part industry or part of the country. I look at that as a, a sign of health and resilience. Uh, and again, like they're just it really where one is sitting in terms of a business, there are different pieces to pull out. Sure. But your labor market and your consumers like that, that's a big because those two, there's a virtuous cycle. They drive right? everything or a, yeah. or a not virtuous cycle when we yeah. go 
into a recession. Yeah, the consumers drive everything. I mean, they were the biggest factor in GDP growth the past two quarters. There's no no question about that. When they stop spending, that's a big you know that's a big issue. And um, when you talk about consumer spending, though, I mean, you're right. If you go onto uh, the St. Louis Fed website, Fred website, there is some things to track. There's consumer confidence, University of Michigan's consumer confidence. There's uh, a conference board. There's also retail sales. Is there any, um, are there any metrics that, and the reason why I ask you about metrics when it comes to consumers, uh, Claudia, is um, I know some economists that sort of shun the government stuff or the surveys and they they kind of focus on the banks and the retailers, you know, like you know, the CEO from Home Depot, you know, is telling you that spending is trending down, you know, like that has more of an impact to somebody than, or if the CEO of, you know, you know Wells Fargo is saying that credit card delinquencies are trending up, you know, that, 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 that pulls more weight for some economists than just relying on government data. And I'm wondering if you feel the same um, or, or, or what when it comes to consumer spending, what do you look at? Over time, we have had so many more private sector data sets available. The private sector, not surprisingly, uh, can be more nimble in yeah. in creating new data sources. Yeah. The official statistics, one piece that they really emphasize is continuity over time. And we have mm. decades and decades of data, but that means you're somewhat constrained when the economy changes. Yeah, it's you look very at the exciting. mirror, right? Right, yeah. So it's very exciting to see all of these different data sources, but this goes back to a comment I made before. You got to be a little careful with some of these, right? Especially ones that come out of particular out of a particular company. It might not be relevant mm. to your your part of the world. Sure. We've seen, you know, the the newspapers every day. There's another set of layoffs at a different company. Every month, there is a massive amount of job destruction and job creation in the U.S. economy. We don't get to see the, you know, so-and-so hired 10,000 workers, right? Like, the, the good news doesn't show up in the newspaper. Mm. Now, we have we have definitely seen industries recently shedding some workers. Like, those mm. layoffs do, you know, the tech sector has really tightened up in terms of some of whether it's their hiring and also their firing. Okay, but the context of this is during the pandemic, when we were all at home and, you know, using the technology, doing these kind of things, they hired a bunch of people thinking, oh, this was going to last forever. Hmm. So what we're seeing now, I wouldn't look to that tech and there are other industries. I mean, Wall Street did a lot of hiring, too, and say, oh, this means everywhere it's spreading. Well, no, we did a lot. We had to do a lot of rebalancing. This was really disruptive, the pandemic. So you have to be careful. If it's not your industry that you know well, looking at some other industry, and that's where Home Depot, you know, coming sure. out. You, sure. you got to be careful because that may not be a sign of, oh, it's coming for me next. It could just be, yeah, that business overhired or, yeah, you know, they've, they've you know, increased their prices so much that, you know, the customers are like, nope, I'm done with you. I'm going to the other hardware store. So I think that's one where contextualizing data is important. Being um, being a picky consumer of data, Got it. right? Got you it. know, I look at I look at so much data, and yet I have rankings of them. Like I filter different pieces of data, and you know, I, I think having your go-to data source. No one wants, none of you want to deal with as many data sources as I am. Because, but that's my job, right? To do that, uh, 
and it is exciting. There's a lot yeah. out there, and a business may find something that's much more pinpointed and has worked well sure. for their sector. Let's look at 2024. I mean, are there you know are there any sort of warning signs or things that concern you about the economy this year? I mean, there's people talk about because of interest rates, people working from homes, real estate, you know, massive real estate debt default that's on the horizon. Obviously, people are still worried about you know wars and shipping channels that you know uh, you know could cause supply chain issues and uh, spike the price of oil. Um, interest rates are still, you know, high relatively. Um, and some people are concerned that, you know, inflation has not been completely tamed. You know, are there any, you know, are there any issues for 2024 that you're like, this is a concern of mine, or these are, these are things that I'm really keeping my eye on? Absolutely. The time we spend thinking about the risk factors, spinning out those stories, that's often the, the most productive time we spend. Right. Because then once something starts going off the rails, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Let's right. switch gears. Uh, so, yes, I I worry all the time about all kinds of things. You you named <laughs> the big pieces. My, my top risk factor for this year is the Fed. Hmm. And... It's, there's an old saying that the Fed goes until it breaks something. And I don't, the U.S. economy remains resilient. Now, no, so. no buffer can hold out forever, right? Mm -hmm. With these high interest rates, there is pressure. We are seeing delinquencies rising. They fell during the pandemic. So we're not much above pre-pandemic and interest mm -hmm. rates are a lot higher. So it's pretty remarkable that delinquency rates are as low as they are. But these are signs that, there, there is stress on the system. My concern is more that something breaks in financial markets, and then that feeds into the economy. I mean, the Fed works through financial markets, so it's not surprising that might be where the trouble starts. We, we have consumer real estate. We have talked about or not consumer. Sorry, it's um. Commercial. Commercial real estate. One yeah. of the risks in the financial markets that we have talked a lot about is commercial real estate. Yeah. Now, that's been a conversation for a while. So you might think, oh, we've got this under control. And yet that's one that is a slow burn kind of industry in terms of the way the the contracts are set up. So that continues to be a risk. Uh, there are other potentially um, in private credit markets. There's some non-transparent parts of the financial system that one always, like those are always uh, suspicions. Uh, in general, the Fed, by raising interest rates so much, so fast, so unexpectedly uh, in 2022, mm -hmm. they created a certain degree of interest mm -hmm. rate risk. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other bank failures around it the market conditions are not kind to bad business decisions, mm. right? And so it, it, those two interacted, and that was the case of Silicon Valley Bank. So that rate, that risk is still there. I keep watching the Fed, kind of nudging them with my uh, arguments that it's time. It's mm. time to start cutting. The Fed is going to drag its heels. They are not going to listen to me. Uh, and and so that that pushes every meeting they wait and don't cut and don't start bringing interest rates down. That's another, that kind of, you know, ratchets up the risk some. And so they're my biggest risk factor in terms of the geopolitics, particularly with the Red Sea and the supply chains. 
the United States, that is not an, an important channel for our trade. Mm -hmm. And the other piece that makes me worry less about it is we don't have this massive demand for goods that we had early in the pandemic and when things opened up, mm. right? And so that, it was the two things crashing together, this massive increase in demand right. and also supply chains that weren't working. Now, of course, if the, if the, uh, if the events, if they spread, if they get worse, if they take longer, then yeah, you know, that's absolutely something to keep an eye on. I mean, geopolitics are always something to keep an eye on. Uh, this year, I mean, uh, the the fact that this is an election year and it's a highly contentious election, I don't know exactly how that would feed through the economy, but I, uh, it's a concern factor, like, you know, Congress not yeah. functioning and... You, so we'll see. You you actually you actually just brought up like the 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 question I just wanted to ask you. I mean, we are heading into an election year. Um, it's not a political this is not a political conversation per se. And but you've spent a lot of time in government, both the Federal Reserve and at the White House. And um, do do presidents matter when it comes to the economy, Claudia? It's like this ongoing debate. Does it really make a difference you sitting in the White House, um, or is it all just it just the economy happens regardless? What's your so, opinion? So yes and no. Okay. In there is a popular perception, and people will assign blame or uh, cheer someone on, like the president. Like if the economy is good as mm -hmm. you go into an election, well, that's gonna people are gonna say, "Hey, the incumbent president, they did a great job," right? And potentially reward them at the ballot box. I mean, that isn't, yeah. isn't decisive, but I mean that there's a lot of research that shows that, and vice versa. If the economy is bad, well, then the person running in opposition tends to get, you know, a thumbs up. Sure. So, th so there's this credit given. Now, is that justified? Nah, probably not. Again, we have a $24 trillion economy. The people who are really making things happen are workers and businesses. You know, so like the president right. really doesn't. It's not like they have a little button they can push, nor the Fed, right? Like neither of them are in control. Now, I will say that the president and Congress, the policies that are put in place, you know, during a, a period running up to an election or the four years of the presidency, those are important. Maybe people don't look at them and say, hey, that was a great policy. It made my life great, but it could make the economy a better place, right? And, and one could argue both... I mean, everything from CARES Act through the rescue plan were a huge relief, getting money out to people in a crisis. 2020 was was bad, I mean, yeah. objectively, but it would have been worse <laughs> without the CARES Act. You know, so yeah. so there's a benefit to, say, Trump and, you know, Congress that was in place. And then President Biden put in the rescue plan that was a big set of relief. Right. Now, whether he's going to get credit for this because we had good labor market and good inflation, it you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. But there were and Congress, some of it bipartisan, passed the, you know, we had the infrastructure plan, the CHIPS yeah. Act, the Inflation Reduction yeah. Act. These are investments, too, that are, you know, they're going to pay off slowly over time, but they're out there in the economy right now, like mm. in the first round. So the president and Congress do matter in terms of how the economy is working or not working. Right. And yet. The credit tends to be to the president. Now, this one is going to be really interesting and has been so far in that you have this split of 
inflation was high. And, and I mean, it's coming down, but still prices are high. Right? Yes. Like, we're not going to reverse those prices because that's the Great no. Depression and we don't want that. Right. Uh, even though people <laughs> say that, they really don't. Uh, so inflation has been high, but the labor market, wages and jobs, like these have been good. Yes. So the, it's going to be a judgment down to the wire of how do people, do they say, hey, that's a good economy or that's a bad yeah. economy? Are we better off or not? Yeah. Right? So that yeah. this one's a tricky one because yeah. there's, there's some pretty big bad and there's some pretty big good. Claudia Sum is a former Federal Reserve economist, a columnist for Bloomberg, uh, and also the founder of Sum Consulting, an economic uh, advisory firm. Claudia, great uh, information. How can we you know, connect with you and find out more about you? Where are you? The best place to see all the work that I do and other ways to contact me, I have a website for my consultancy. So it's claudiasom, all one word, dot com. And that shows a lot of my writing at Bloomberg, my Substack, and just the kind of work I do in general with the macro analysis. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining. It was a great insight and analysis. We'll definitely would love to have you back. Thank great. you. Thank you. Everybody, you have been watching and or listening to the Paychecks Thrive podcast. My name is Gene Marks. Thank you so much. Take care. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychex Incorporated 2024, all rights reserved.